You're listening to the UI podcast by the Swedish Institute of International Affairs. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to Utrikespolitiska Institutet. My name is Rusbe Parsi. I'm head of the Middle East and North Africa program and will be the moderator for the conversation this afternoon. Our topic is Iran and Saudi Arabia in a Trumpian world, crisis of governance and legitimacy. Question mark. Uh, the idea here is to discuss and at least begin the conversation with looking at the domestic dynamics of these two countries, where you can see parallels and differences in how they are trying to govern their societies, but also then what kind of lack of legitimacy, problems of legitimacy and succession that you will find in both of them. And of course, there is no coincidence that we've chosen these two. It's not just that there are some parallels in terms of what's happening on the inside. It's also the fact that they are locked in a struggle, not alone, but nonetheless two of the main competitors in the region, uh, in a struggle which has very clear military dimensions and at the moment could ignite a new war in the region. As the title says, it's not just the two of them. There is also Donald Trump, the president of the United States, without which the mix would not have reached its perfect state, uh, and which obviously is an added complicating dimension to understanding how these two states behave, but also how they will develop in the near future, whether in alignment with or opposition to the United States. For this discussion, we've invited two eminent experts. We have on my immediate left, Adnan Tabatabai, who wrote his master at the London School of Oriental and African Studies, and since 2014 has been the CEO of the Center of Applied Research in cooperation with the Orient, in partnership with Orient, acronyms. Um, and been doing some very interesting work, especially on trying to analyze the countries around the Persian Gulf, but also in trying to get them to talk to each other, which is an even more important and difficult task. He has been published in numerous journals and newspapers, and also written a book on Iran in German called Morgen in Iran, the Islamische Republik im Aufbruch, came out three years ago. So Morning in Iran, the emergence of a new Iran, discussing the Islamic Republic and its future. To his left is Dr. Christopher Davidson, who holds a PhD from St. Andrews, where he also taught for many years. He's also taught at Zayed University in the UAE. He's an associate fellow at the Royal United Service Institute and the author of numerous books. Uh, I will just mention three of the relatively recent ones, Shadow Wars, The Secret Struggle for the Middle East, after the Sheikhs, which came out in 2013, and Abu Dhabi, Oil and Beyond. So with him, we will be able to not only delve into what's happening in Saudi Arabia, but also have a look at its main ally, for now at least, in the region, which is the United Arab Emirates. We will give each speaker roughly 15 minutes to lay out their arguments, and then I will pepper them with questions, and then we will open up for the QA with the audience. Adnan, please. I don't think, uh, now it's working. Okay, perfect. 
thank you, dear Rusbe, and thanks uh, to your institute uh, for the invitation and for the opportunity to speak here. Uh, it's great to be back in Stockholm. Um, unfortunately, I have to say this, this meeting is quite timely given the, the events that we had last weekend. But um, what we discussed previous to this session was that we want to first dive into the inner uh, dynamics of, of, of both Iran and Saudi Arabia. So what I'm going to do in the next uh, roughly 15 minutes would be to speak a bit about my observations and my assessments of trends and dynamics that we see in Iran's political climate, both on the level of the state and of the level of society and the population. There will definitely be things that I won't be able to mention or elaborate on during my input. So if those are left out, don't think I'm trying to avoid them, but rather because of time pressure, we should focus to some issues that we can then later obviously add to the discussion. Um, I think what is important when we look at the current situation is that particularly with the election of the current president, Hassan Rouhani, in 2013, we saw quite a significant shift in the political landscape of the Islamic Republic. Um, most of you will know that there is this reformist camp and then there is this camp of principalists. So quite similar to the US that there are two very distinct camps. Um, and I am one of those who say that there is a real difference between two camps. Others argue it's basically the same with different labels. But um, indeed, 2013 and the election of Hassan Rouhani introduced a third camp into the mix of Iran's politics. And that was the so-called moderates. Etedaliyun is how they called themselves. And basically, progressive principalists, if you will, and more conservative reformists kind of find their way uh, to the political center to form an alliance to basically overcome the strict affiliation with their original camp. And Hassan Rouhani seemed to embody this uh, drive towards the center of both camps. I have to add, though, that as early as in 2008, in the run-up to the 2009 presidential elections, there have been actually political or presidential candidates who have been speaking about the need of a national coalition uh, to run the country. Uh, you all know Ahmadinejad was re-elected in the disputed elections 2009, but this idea of the necessity to bring these two camps together existed before. And it actually came into fruition, if you will, in 2013. And I think at this point, it's also important to remember that Hassan Rouhani was someone who came out of the core of Iran's security establishment. He was he was never a reformer, he is not a reformer, and he will never be one that has never been on his agenda. The one reason that people thought he could be a bit of a reformer is that he was arguing um, for more cultural freedom, for more, for more press freedom. He was speaking in favor of civil rights, not because he's the flag holder of democracy or pluralism, but rather that his argument was, if we want to keep security in our country, we have to give people a bit more breathing space. And that was the logic that he was following. And that's also the reason why the ambitions that he had to, to champion these electoral promises were obviously quite limited, because it was not his ideological conviction, um, but rather a calculation with regards to the security situation of the um, of the country. And now, obviously, nowadays, it's he's uh, much less so addressing these issues in, in, in public. 
I think that it's also important to remember that the reasons why he he was accepted by the political elite and elected by the by the population had also to do with the fact that during his presidential bid in 2013, he he turned the nuclear file into the one political issue that perfectly linked domestic and external affairs. Resolving the nuclear issue, the nuclear dispute, um, was seen literally as the key, and he used the key as a symbol during his campaign, as the key to improve the economic situation at home and normalize relations abroad. And if you listen to Iranian uh, uh, interlocutors, they very often use this term of the aim to desecuritize Iran. Iran had the goal with the nuclear agreement to desecuritize Iran. What actually is meant with that is that this pariah status that the Islamic Republic has always had, being under chapter seven of the UN Security Council is something that the Iranians wanted to get rid of. And that holds true for both the state and the population. So there was this idea to desecuritize Iran through resolving the nuclear dispute, something that Hassan Rouhani was, was promising. Another key word, and that held true particularly for the domestic scene, was de-radicalization. There was an exhaustion of ideologically driven policies during the eight years of Mahmoud Ahmadinejad. And both on the state level and the societal level, level there was a, a call for more pragmatism, for more um, practically oriented um, approaches. On the political level, I would say that had to do with the experience of the Ahmadinejad years, a, 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 an eight-year presidency that, that caused some issues on the cultural, economic, and political spheres. Um, in, with regards to the, elect, uh, to the electorate, to the people who, who went to the voting booths in 2013 and again in 17 for the presidential elections, it's the, obviously the same. There was this need or this, this, this quest for less ideologically driven policies. But there is also a notion that I think we should keep in mind, and that is the, the age structure of the Iranian population. Um, as of 2017, uh, the exact numbers can be looked up easily. It's actually out there in all, uh, in all data. Roughly 48.5% of Iranians are between 25 and 54. That's, again, roughly 70% of Iran's eligible voters. These are 33 million Iranians that are in this age group, 25 to, 20, uh, to 54. Then you have a very small group between 14 and 25. And then again, a group of roughly, I think, uh, 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 close to 17, 18% that are between 0 and 14. Now, if you look at this big chunk of the electorate uh, or of the Iranian population between 25 and, 20, uh, and 54, you have the younger ones who have possibly, and that's very common in Iran, just finished their academic education. And on the, on the other end of this big group, you have people who are actually usually settled in a family. And none of these two ends of this, of this big group uh, has any appetite for adventurous, uh, ideologically loaded uh, policies that can shake up the everyday their everyday lives. Um, so I think a lot of what we saw as election results since 2013, and there have been five different um, elections since then, have also been driven by this quest for, for stability in a sense that nothing big, nothing sensational happens. 
I think it is important for me to mention here that I do not view Iran's elections as being free and fair elections in every respect compared to elections that we see in Europe. But the one thing that I can tell you as someone who was in Iran during election days is that people in Iran and the striking majority of Iran take these elections seriously. You've had roughly 40 million people participating in the 2017 elections. And for them, despite the limited choice that they have, they feel that they can make a difference depending on who is the winner of um, a specific electoral round. And the, this trend for more pragmatist, less ideologically driven policies has led to electoral results also in the parliamentary elections and the assembly of experts elections that radical elements within these or more, more ideological elements within these entities were basically kicked out of parliament and the assembly of experts, whereas no names who no one actually ever heard of found their way into, into parliament simply because they were on a list of people whom the population seemed to be trusting more. And the population, in fact, went as far as to send out people who have been veterans of the political class, but whom they saw as being obstacles to the new approach adopted by the sitting uh, government. Now, a couple of years later, with the current situation we find ourselves in, with parliamentary elections coming up in 2020, obviously the very same people who were kicked out of parliament are now, uh, in fact, uh, preparing themselves to, to return to parliament with the exact same argument that the policies of this government are not working, we're, we're, we're worse, in a worse situation, the economy, political isolation, etc. So this will be interesting for us um, to watch. And uh, I think Ruzbe mentioned this, um, that all of the electoral processes in Iran always have this theme of succession as an underlying theme within them. So the supreme leader of the country, Ayatollah Khamenei, is uh, 80 years old, and a lot of the discussions about the political realities in Iran and how different political camps position themselves uh, has to do with the question of who is putting himself in the position of being his successor. So that is the reason why the competition is also extremely um, tense. And one point I should, I should add here, when, when I observed or when I was in, uh, in Iran during the 2016 presidential, 2017 presidential elections, when you followed the debates on social media, particularly Telegram, the big uh, messaging app the Iranians use, the, the tone was extremely hostile and, and uh, quite, I don't want to say vulgar, but it was, it was really, you, you, you would become worried. What if that kind of discourse was translated into action on the street? But then, on the, in fact, what you saw during election campaigns, during the election uh, rallies, was that nothing during the four weeks that, that really saw day-to-day -day rallies, nothing really happened. There was no incident, there was no attack, nothing that is, uh, uh, in fact, led to some sort, of, so, some sort of unrest. And that, to me, showed how seriously it is taken in Iran to, to seize the opportunity to participate in something like, like elections. And if you ask me today about about because that matters in the end when we when we speak about legitimacy and governance etc so of course the big question now is with the disappointment over what this government has achieved with the nuclear agreement or we should better say has not achieved 
will people be again willing to go to the to, uh, and participate in elections? And of course, it's difficult to assess that. And there are a lot of officials in Iran who are, in fact, uh, skeptical about turnout next time. But um, elections in Iran have always been this kind of crescendo where the final weeks and literally days, and I would even go as far as to say hours of an election day, determine how much people, how many people are mobilized. And so therefore it's difficult now to say elections in 2020 for parliament and 2021 for presidential elections will not matter because today things are so bleak. We should, we should wait and, and, and see how that, how that goes. The, um, the key grievances that the electorate in Iran has and the, and the complaints that they have, have in fact remained the same over the six years of presidency of Hassan Rouhani so far. Unemployment is a big issue. Underemployment is also a big issue among the youth, among women. Low purchasing power combined with a sense of injustice because the 99% low purchasing power is compensated by the huge purchasing power of, 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 of the wealthy. Corruption has been a an issue as public as never before, I have to say. You, you simply won't open a newspaper in Iran without a public defamation of one very corrupt person. So, and this in itself has done a bit to alleviate some of the grievances because people feel like finally there seems to be some sort of, uh, um, yeah, some sort of, of, of crackdown on corruption. And then there comes always this point where People speak about the uncertainty in their country. They don't know how things will look in their country or in the region in six months from now. When we see the events of last weekend, who knows what's going to happen or not going to happen in the upcoming weeks. So that is something that creates problems for, uh, for the, an everyday citizen in Iran. And then there is this other important point that I want to highlight, and that is there is this wrong assumption that with sanctions, the economic hardship of people will worsen and people will eventually... Uh, blame their government for it, but obviously Iranians are smart enough to understand that while a lot of problems are due to the government's mismanagement and corruption, the other half of it is the U.S. sanctions regime. So when, the, when this sanctions regime is imposed on Iran, they know that these problems that are existent are in fact being exacerbated. So they really both uh, blame both sides of this um, grievance coin. Um, To conclude, I think um, what, what is important for the current climate, and I will finish with that, is that the leadership in the Islamic Republic is actually quite used to this sort of coercive diplomacy being exerted um, on, on them. So sanctions have been the essence of, of everyday life of the Islamic Republic. The, the exception have been, has been the time in the, uh, the finalization of the nuclear agreement. This has been the two to three years where you actually had the most intense factional infighting in Iran. Those, those years when it seemed as if the normalization of Iran's foreign relations can actually, can actually happen. So I think the current crisis management in Iran will also determine whether or not we will actually see future elections being as um, as much uh, as, as so, the question is whether voter turnout will be as high as, as, as it has been before. And um, we are still seeing the same st age structure that I have mentioned before for the next five to ten years. So we can assume that there will be the, the, a similar voting behavior. But I would also say, and that's my final point, that a new breed of technocrats in Iran is needed 
for the people to see that there are new faces, new actors that could actually steer this country out of the crisis. Factional affiliations will matter less and less in my view, so it won't matter if this person is a reformist or a principalist or a moderate or whatever. If this person is seen as someone who is a technocrat who can solve issues, then I think people will be willing to give this person um, a chance. A lot of points unaddressed, but I think uh, I leave it at this point and we can then discuss things uh, further. Thanks. Thank you, Adnan. I'm going to give you three keywords so you know you have a heads up for what's coming in the first round of questions. The economy, the future of the reformists, and the succession to Khamenei, and obviously the big elephant in the room at the moment, war and deterrence. Okay? Christopher, please. Invitation. Um to speak here. It's actually my first visit to Stockholm, a truly beautiful and grand uh, European capital, though I noticed uh, quite an alarming um, number of homeless people on the streets last night. Um, turning, to, turning to Saudi Arabia, um, firstly, with regards to legitimacy of the Saudi uh, ruling family or, or, or regime, as it were, historically, this has been understood as some sort of social contract or ruling bargain between whoever is the head of state and the Saudi citizenry. Um, this has been more or less uh, the same sort of social contract as we've seen in the other uh, Gulf monarchies, the other five Gulf monarchies. Though, of course, these six Gulf monarchies have very different circumstances, different population sizes, different relative oil and gas wealth, and, an, an, and another of, a number of other factors. Perhaps um, the most important uh, uh, strand to this social contract or ruling bargain has been the Saudi regime's ability to distribute wealth to its population. Um, this has usually been uh, an almost cradle-to-grave uh, welfare state. Uh, also, very importantly, uh, the provision of uh, public housing and public sector uh, employment as well. Um, taken together, um, this has usually been enough to, to guarantee some level of political acquiescence amongst the population. And another key side to this uh, economic strand of the social contract has been that Saudi Arabia historically has been able to import most of its laboring class uh, for visitors to the region and indeed to all of these Gulf monarchies. It's not an unusual to see uh, very few citizens at all on building sites, for example, or working in more me menial sectors of the economy. As well as the, uh, as well as the economic dimension, we also have the matter of religious and traditional legitimacy as well. Uh, the kings of Saudi Arabia, to a greater degree than the other Gulf monarchies, have tended to be able to harness the religious establishment for their own purposes. Uh, after all, uh, Saudi Arabia is home to Mecca and Medina. Of course, the official title of the Saudi head of state is the custodian uh, of the two holy mosques. Um, so in this sense, uh, uh, religion and, uh, and, and tradition, uh, the rules of the religious establishment as they are applied to society, have been uh, routinized uh, in Saudi Arabia uh, over the years. As well, uh, as part of this social contract as well, uh, we've also very much had uh, a feeling that the Saudi monarchy itself um, acts as a sort of uh, proto-state. Uh, the monarchy acts as a sort of 
uh, de facto giant ruling party, as we may see in other uh, authoritarian Republican uh, regimes, for example, where membership of the ruling family uh, usually carries with it some sort of status, a position in the public sector, a position in the army, uh, a position in the economic elite, uh, etc. In parallel to this uh, social contract, we of course have also had Saudi, uh, Saudi Arabia's relatively favorable international relations over many years, in particular their support from the United States and the other Western powers, which arguably up until very recently has largely provided Saudi Arabia with something of a security uh, guarantee. Um, Saudi Arabia, of course, has had to pay for this very handsomely over the years. It's made spectacular arms purchases from Britain, France, and the United States. Uh, it's also made a number of uh, very significant soft power investments uh, in the Western powers as well, ranging from think tanks uh, to academia, to mosques, to uh, public charities, uh, and, 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 and so on. Taken together, uh, thus far, this has all been enough to more or less uh, guarantee the stability uh, of the Saudi state. There have been uh, times of difficulty in the past, times of austerity, times when the Saudi regime has had to put uh, the prospect of taxation on the table, for example. Uh, but time and again, the Saudi regime uh, has survived. Turning to the last few years, however, we have a very interesting uh, set of developments uh, with regard to the contemporary governance uh, stru structures. Um, more or less, this has charted the rise of the young, ambitious crown prince, Mohammed bin Salman, known by his acronym uh, MBS, since early 2015. What we've seen here in many ways, uh, in my view at least, is a crucial shift in Saudi Arabia from being a consensus-based, shakely monarchy where whoever is the king or the head of state uh, may be at the helm of an authoritarian regime, but he is not necessarily acting in a completely autocratic and unrestrained manner. He still has to rule with the consensus and consent of uh, many other members of his own family, uh, many of these key princes in Saudi Arabia who for many years, and in some cases many decades, have operated ministries or entire sections of the armed forces or entire sections of the economy as their own personal mini fiefdoms or mini kingdoms. But we've seen very recently uh, a significant change. The circle of power under MBS has become much, much smaller and much tighter. Uh, these so-called advisors, lieutenants, or enforcers that are often described in the Western press as being close to the crown prince, in many cases, don't carry uh, major public, public sector titles. In some cases, they're not even ministers, for example, but they're clearly part of this new, small, tight circle of power, a sort of more crony-based personalist network where members can be rapidly promoted by the crown prince at his discretion and, of course, can rapidly be demoted, de uh, demoted and potentially even uh, eliminated from this ruling circle. In this sense, what we may be seeing is a more personalized, arbitrary form of autocratic authoritarianism in Saudi Arabia uh, than in the past. So it may not be the sort of collapsing of shake-based consensus rule, 
that many had expected uh, 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 many times in the past, but it is nonetheless some sort of non-democratic transition that at present we know very little about. Um, it's already starting to, uh, uh, the new regime is already starting to apply itself with, within Saudi Arabia. For example, in terms of uh, control or dominance of the economy, we're seeing economic policy in Saudi Arabia, whether that's over the crucial oil ministry, whether that's uh, over Aramco, arguably the best performing uh, asset in Saudi Arabia, being brought much more tightly into this small circle of power. We're starting to see the patronage network take over other key aspects of Saudi policy. For example, Saudi Arabia's relations and indeed its, indeed its uh, embassy in the United States being controlled by the cronies of M M MBS. We're starting to also see the new, more autocratic regime in Saudi Arabia start to dismantle parts of the old social contract, especially with regards to tradition and religion. In this sense, uh, I always like to describe it as a sort of selective cherry picking by the crown prince and his advisors. The parts of religion and tradition that they want to keep, which they still see as legitimizing their regime, but on the other hand, trying to disrupt or remove those that they see as potentially problematic. In particular, those traditions or aspects of religion in Saudi Arabia that are seen as unpopular by the giant Saudi youth bulge. As Adnan mentioned in the context of Iran, Iran has a very significant youth bulge, while Saudi Arabia has an even bigger one relative to its overall population. These are all young people in Saudi Arabia who are pushing their way up through the system. Historically, of course, their parents' generation had expected the generous welfare state, had expected the generous uh, uh, public sector employment. And these are things that the Crown Prince of Saudi Arabia knows he may not be able to deliver as his predecessors have been able to deliver. There have clearly been significant economic headwinds that Saudi Arabia has been facing. It hasn't been able to diversify its economic base away from oil and gas anywhere near as urgently as arguably it should have been over the past few decades. This, the shale revolution and associated new oil producing technologies around the world since uh, uh, over the past 10 years and certainly since 2014 have led to a situation this year where Saudi Arabia has been overtaken as the world's number one producer of oil. Saudi Arabia has clearly lost its dominance uh, over the international oil industry. It's lost its role as the international oil swing producer and it's perhaps looking to a future of sustained uh, lower oil prices, assuming, of course, there is not more open conflict. In this scenario, uh, the Crown Prince of Saudi Arabia is looking to a, a short-term and certainly medium-term future where his regime can't offer his citizens the same sort of economic component of the social contract as previous kings of Saudi Arabia can. But what he can offer them are certain liberal relaxations. In this sense, he may not be able to offer them as much bread, but he can offer them more circuses. We've seen cinemas uh, being allowed in Saudi Arabia, women being able to socialize much more openly with men, women being able to attend public events, sporting fixtures, fixtures much better access to uh, education for women, women being able to drive. These have all been direct and head-on challenges uh, against certain 
more ultra-conservative elements of the religious establishment. Thus far, it seems to be working. Um, those who may have been expected to mount opposition have been sidelined or imprisoned. Um, there hasn't been the expected pushback from the religious establishment yet. Uh, young people in Saudi Arabia, regardless of the crown prince's increasingly uh, low reputation on the international sta stage, especially in the wake of last year's uh, uh, apparent assassination of Jamal Khashoggi, the bottom line is the majority of these young Saudis do seem to be supporting the crown prince's measures. They recognize that something needs to be done about the economy, and perhaps this more autocratic style of authoritarianism with this strongman image, able, for example, to lock up supposedly corrupt relatives of his, uh, supposedly corrupt ministers and other senior officials, is being taken largely as a positive step uh, by many young Saudis. Uh, equally, his standing up to the religious establishment in the way that his father, his uncle, and previous Saudi kings have not been able to do is seen as a positive step as well. For the crown prince himself, the risk of taking on the religious establishment is also a very calculated one beyond his own citizens too. Looking at his own regime security and survival, he's looked and he's seen previous threats to the Saudi state having come from political Islam, whether it was the awakening movement back in the 1980s or 90s, whether it was the fact in the wake of the Arab uprisings in 2011, that organized political is Islam in Egypt, in Tunisia, in Yemen, and in many other places was doing very, very well. And the potential for sympathetic organizations in Saudi Arabia to ultimately confront uh, the hereditary ruling family was seen as a very, very real threat. So in this sense, an urgent need to nip in the bud political Islam demonize the Muslim Brotherhood and its fellow travelers, lock up any potential critics within the religious establishment. And there's a final third strand to this calculated risk of taking on the religious establishment as well. The Crown Prince is well aware of Saudi Arabia's international reputation, especially in the United States and also to some extent in Britain and the rest of Europe, that Saudi Arabia historically has been regarded and associated with sponsoring and financing uh, several uh, very deadly international terrorist organizations. Some in the room may be well aware of the Justice Against Sponsors of Terrorism Act in the United States that is slowly starting to see a drip feed of material entering US courts uh, on the behest of the families of the victims of 9-11, which is starting to see more and more evidence accumulate that members of the Saudi elite and potentially even members of the royal family had something to do with Al-Qaeda and the 9-11 attacks. Now, what's particularly interesting about this MBS, Crown Prince of Saudi Arabia regime, is the content of some of the interviews he's been giving, where he's actually gone on the record and admitted that the Saudi state had a problem in the past. In other words, willing to draw a red line under his own regime, separating it from the predecessor regimes. Maybe well aware that regardless of who is sitting in the White House in the United States, it won't ultimately be able to prevent this evidence from appearing uh, in US courts. Finally then, with regards to the Trumpian order and how Saudi Arabia and MBS's particular autocratic governance model fits into this, what's making it very difficult in the United States, Britain and other Western powers 
is the way of reading this type of new regime. Our tools in Britain, for example, in the past were based on this consensus-based shapely monarchy where certain key princes or advisors would have a portfolio, for example, a portfolio over oil policy, a portfolio over labor and housing, a portfolio for the Syrian war, a portfolio for the Yemen war, at least in the beginning. That seems to be largely sidelined with this smaller, tighter circle of advisors around the crown prince, which is much more opaque to penetrate and thus much harder to understand uh, for governments uh, elsewhere in the world. What's also very, uh, what's also very uh, noticeable is the increasing understanding in Saudi Arabia itself that in this new international climate, it cannot rely on the same sort of security guarantees it's enjoyed in the past, in particular from the United States. And of course, the event, which I'm sure we'll talk about uh, in greater depth over the past few days and indeed the past few months, uh, where, of course, there have been strikes directly on Saudi Arabia, oil tankers attacked, uh, and, uh, and, more, and, and more such incidents, have not provoked any kind of significant retaliatory response from the United States or those countries that Saudi Arabia in the past has invested great time and effort in, in, in ensuring our, our allies. So it leaves us in a very puzzling situation where, to my mind at least at the moment, we don't have the tools or methods in place to fully understand what's going on in Saudi Arabia, how this regime is changing, and how this regime may act both on the regional stage and even on the world stage. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, it strikes me that this personalistic way of, of uh, running a country is somewhat reminiscent of how Trump is running the United States, where everyone who is not related to him by marriage or blood has a rather short lifespan within the administration, while family is closest, in a sense. Um, we can get back to those parallels in a moment. Um, Adnan, as part of this dynamic between these two countries and the United States, it's the question of the Iranian economy. Now, this is something that's been discussed widely in different ways, but perhaps we could just very briefly untangle just how bad is the Iranian economy and how much does economic hardship translate into Iranian willingness to negotiate or et cetera? Um, indeed, the, 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 that seems to be the, the big question everyone focuses on as to how long will it take this maximum pressure campaign to really have the effect that it is supposed to have, um, making Iran that desperate to bring it to the to the negotiating table. And um, so my Im impressions have been that um, once the sanctions were reimposed, that was basically over the summer of of next of last of last year, uh, up until. Spring this year, uh, it had the a devastating effect on the Iranian economy uh, because it actually uh, led to big, big factories having to, to shut down, the, the stopping of any form of imports of industrial uh, materials that they needed to keep their factories going, um, leading to, to higher uh, un unemployment of, of big companies basically uh, going bankrupt, wages not being paid. Um, as you can tell from the way I'm saying this, I'm not an economist by training. I'm, th those uh, uh, observations that I have had um, would, however, suggest or indicate what the effects have been. Um, so unemployment was spiked due to that. Uh, the, I mean, the most devastating effect, obviously, 
uh, is uh, that even in terms of medicine, food, you have uh, severe shortages. Um, and if certain medicine or medication is existent, uh, it's extremely expensive. It has become expensive, particularly for cancer patients, etc. But also consumer goods, everything is still available, but the prices are have gone up because and it's it's simple to 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 imagine it this way. Uh, every single product has to come in through a through a third uh, um, interface. And that particular interface certainly grabs some of the of the value of that good. So um the purchasing power has been affected uh, um, critically. Um, and the Iranian economy obviously then had to find new avenues to sell its oil. Oil um, is, uh, while being r- roughly about 20% of the of the country's economy, the state revenues generated from that are higher. So oil exports are certainly something the country is seeking to to ensure. And it took the country, I would say, seven to eight months to to secure new avenues. Um, in order to avoid that officially Iranian oil sales go down to zero. And there are different assessments as to how how many barrels per day Iran is still exporting. And I think for the simple fact that it's impossible to really detect where Iranian oil is going because those who, who are running oil sales really don't want it to become public because it would otherwise be, be shut down. Um, Coming back to your question of how desperate Iran is, if we look at certain economic indicators, um, starting from inflation, unemployment, to the value of the currency, things have sort of stabilized and even gradually improved since May this year. Um, And it seems as if the economic problems and the hardship has been constant for some time. It has not, not worsened. And it seems to me from interlocutors uh, from different strands of the Iranian scene, be it the political uh, community, policy experts, economists, um, academics, and average citizens, that it seems that the toughest time is already behind them. Um, China's positioning vis-a-vis the US in that trade war has been in the favor of Iran. So much more oil sales and other strategic partnership seems to be in the making with China, which obviously allows the Iranian economy and the state, and this is important, to survive. So it is the country is again in survival mode. This is really not the time to speak about luxury, luxurious things as sustainable development and growth and all things. This is this this is left again for 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 other countries. Iran is in full survival mode, and I think it is all also important for us to consider that this country, except for two or three years when the nuclear deal was sealed, has been in that mode. So the leadership of the country more or less is used to these to to, to this current situation. In a short. A short line, Iran, I don't see any despair in Iran to go to the negotiating table with the U.S., um, not in the U.N. General Assembly next week and possibly not even before re-election or election in the U.S. in 2020. I don't see Iran being that desperate yet. Thank you. Let's let's take that question of the economy to you, Christopher. So Aramco being the most important company in Saudi Arabia, I think also the largest oil company in the world, is the company whose installations were attacked. And Aramco has been trying for several years now to come out and become a public company, uh, each time withdrawing uh, just before it was supposed to happen. Now, 
Saudi Arabia, in that sense, is a much more oil-dependent country than Iran is at the moment. Not because Iranian economists necessarily are brilliant, but because they have had no choice. So what are the abilities of this new personalistic style of uh, MBS to actually turn the Saudi economy away from oil dependency? Uh, and how will the recent attacks uh, affect Aramco's ability to become a public and probably one of the most highly valued companies in the world? Well, yes, there's no doubt that uh, after many, many decades of opportunities, Saudi Arabia um, is very un undiversified. Um, in this sense, what happened over the, over the past few days really hit the nerve center or the jugular, not only of Saudi Arabia's economy, but also of its entire political system. If we compare Saudi Arabia and Iran, in many ways we're trying to compare apples and oranges, even though both are major oil producers. In Saudi Arabia, we've had this uh, decades-long uh, system, social contract we, we discussed earlier, where the population, the citizenry, have been reliant and expecting this, this generous distribution of wealth. And that wealth, of course, comes from recycled oil rents going to the government and then the government recycling them back to the population. In contrast with Islamic Republic of Iran, and to some extent the Shah's Iran before that, uh, the country has been used to much longer, leaner periods of austerity. And of course, successive Iranian regimes, as Ad Adnan has talk talked about as well, uh, have been largely able to con compensate for any more austere economic com conditions by ramping up their anti-imperialist ideology and rhetoric on the international stage, rallying people behind that cause instead. In Saudi Arabia's case, uh, it's looking much, much harder uh, to do that. Um, what we've seen, of course, are very grand uh, plans being put forward by the Crown Prince and, and, and his advisors uh, under this umbrella that some in the room may have heard of called Vision 2030. Big international conferences have been held. The idea is to kickstart new sectors of Saudi Arabia's economy, non-oil sectors of its economy, especially knowledge, IT, and research and development-based sectors of the economy, by bringing in foreign investment. But of course, the idea behind bringing in that foreign investment is to use oil money as the sweetener to bring, to bring foreigners on board. Uh, Aramco itself, of course, one of the purposes behind the, at least the original plan behind the public offering was to essentially use this windfall to help kickstart the other sectors of the economy. Saudi Arabia has looked to the United Arab Emirates as a role model in many ways, as having a relatively more diverse economic base. And this has been happening for many, many years with much planning and foresight in Dubai and Abu Dhabi in particular, where they've been able to use their sovereign wealth coming from hydrocarbon uh, rents uh, to encourage and entice foreign investors and foreign companies to come to the UAE, either as foreign investors or as partners in joint ventures. In Saudi Arabia, of course, there are very big question marks over Vision 2030. First of all, it's a matter of timing. If you sit there and read through the entire document, which I have to admit I have, uh, some of it is, uh, is very, very coherent, and it's one of the best diversification visionary documents ever produced by a Gulf state. But you have this lingering concern that what they're attempting to do really takes, really will take a generation or two to achieve rather than the very, very short time frame 
they're trying to uh, uh, put forward. If you think of it this way, there has to be a reconditioning of the Saudi citizenry to expect, instead of generous public sector employment and distribution of benefits and welfare, instead, Saudi citizens have to think of a future where they're going to have to work competitively in one of these new sectors of the economy. And that will probably involve having to work in the private sector rather than the public sector as their parents' generation did. So it's a very, very big concern uh, over whether the, the, this, this can be done. And of course, finally, we have the wild card of the Jamal Khashoggi assassination last year, where it seems as though the MBS regime severely miscalculated the negative international feedback that's still going on that resulted from that uh, episode, where it's placed a huge dent, uh, obstacle, in the ability to bring in this foreign direct investment as quickly as possible. Because essentially, multinationals, especially in the West, can't be seen to be too closely connected to the MBS regime, given their own, uh, given their own, their own uh, rep, 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 reputational risks and corporate social responsibility. Yeah, but then um, let's take that one step further. You discussed earlier that MBS is, in a sense, winning and wooing the youth in Saudi Arabia through allowing greater cultural liberty. So clamping down religious police and so on. Now, will at some point this youth bulge also expect political liberties? And will they expect them when they're also expected to actually work a nine-to-five job in a private company from which they can be fired? Well, I think the best way to view the situation at the moment is uh, a transitionary period between one type of authoritarian regime to another in Saudi Arabia, where a lot of Saudi youth recognize there are serious problems facing their country, serious economic problems. The crown prince has put forward a plan, very autocratic, tough, brutal if necessary, to get things done. As far as many are concerned, if he wasn't at the helm of this ship, if it was still the old, bloated, corrupt regime of the past, nothing would get done and Saudi Arabia would be about to hit a brick wall. Clearly, it's a matter of breathing space. There's only so much political legitimacy that can be gained from allowing people to, uh, both genders, to mix in coffee shops or go to sports matches or watch cinema, these buy short -term, uh, this buys short-term breathing space, eventually it will come to the crunch of whether the jobs are being provided, whether the key benefits that seem to be ring-fenced that the crown prince can't remove, whether they are having to be, uh, um, whether they're having to be eroded, or whether, God forbid, taxes have to be introduced at some point in the future. Then we come to the real, uh, the real question marks. But thus far, Despite all of the international backlash against the crown prince, it does appear that the majority of people in the country, provided they haven't been purged, of course, are on his side. Okay, very good. Um, Adnan, just before we get into whether there will be a war or not, etc., to what extent is the political dynamics in Iran at the moment, as you mentioned yourself, how much is it under the shadow of who is going to succeed Ayatollah Khamenei? Well, um, obviously, the, the, the question of power politics in the Islamic Republic, are uh, th that aspect is, is 
is literally everywhere and it's uh, sometimes it's up out in the open and, and and in most times however it's a it's an issue that 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 plays a role in the in the dynamics of alignments and the power elite etc um this 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 question is um very little discussed in concrete terms in public so you wouldn't have candidates that are lined up and then there is a public debate and you know talk shows on tv about about the, uh, these figures that's certainly not the case um it, it has also to do with the fact that i think there is no appetite whatsoever to suggest that there is now the need to find a successor so that that is the reason of course on the one hand is uh, power interests on the other hand is also this this notion of don't let people think that it's about time to to choose someone and um i also think it's it's uh, very difficult to speculate about who this successor might be the one thing that i believe uh, is helpful to think about what what criteria does this person have to uh, embody and it's <laughs> as simple as it sounds it's as difficult as it is this person needs authority in the political elites of the country it uh, this person needs authority in the clerical uh, circles of the country. There is ne the necessity to be a respected figure in the holy cities of Qom, but also in Mashhad. Mashhad has emerged as an increasingly important holy city in Iran in the past couple of years. And the third aspect is that this person has to also obviously be respected uh, in the security apparatus. So clergy, political class, security apparatus. Um, and then you can look at the different figures that somehow are on display and think about who could fit into this into this group. I, for one, don't see any person really uh, considerably covering all of this. Um, but uh, we can imagine that, as was already the case in 2017, I mean, many will know that the main contender to Hassan Rouhani back then was Mr. Ibrahim Raisi. A lot of people saw him as a potential future supreme leader. That electoral defeat in 2017 was also seen by many as basically his end of having chances to become a supreme leader. But um, uh, and we, we will we will see in the in the electoral cycle, which starts in February March next year, so 2020, up to June 2021, when the presidential elections will happen, that this theme of succession. Uh, will come up um, time and again, and it will make the entire electoral process even more, uh, even more tense. So that's that's going to make it interesting. As as far as personality is concerned, I'm afraid I won't be able to to bring in candidates that we could uh, speak about in detail. Well, that's interesting because I mean, if you think of it in terms of criteria, the only time there has been a succession to the supreme leader, the criteria failed as well. When Ayatollah Khamenei was chosen, they had to change the criteria to fit him. So they couldn't find anyone who both was clerically and revolutionary, if you will, uh, as aligned with the system. So that's one aspect. The other aspect, which goes back to MBS in a sense, is that Raisi is making waves as head of the judiciary and using the anti-corruption drive as one way of, of uh, kind of uh, jacking up his, his uh, potential to come back as a contender. For the supreme leader post so anti-corruption seems to be a, a, a surefire way of, of making yourself popular at least in some circles um now to the elephant again um the attacks a couple of days ago and the increase of tension since may with the attacks on the oil tankers in the straits of hormuz have increased the temperature in a way that no one 
uh, I think, would have thought of or wanted to think of was possible. Now, there are several reasons for this, obviously. One is the pressure campaign that the Trump administration has been levying against Iran, uh, where the Iranians, it seemed, decided to kind of uh, confront Trump before he confronted them, or at least that was one of the interpretations. Uh, and the other one is, of course, that Iran wants to make sure that the primary ally of the United States in the region, in the Gulf, Saudi Arabia, is well aware of the cost of that alliance and a potential military confrontation. Now, what is your reading of the events of the last week and where things will go from now? Christopher. Well, I think it's certainly been very worrying in Saudi Arabia um, that the historic security guarantee that they've enjoyed or assumed from the United States, and to some extent proven in the wake of Kuwait's invasion in summer 1990, when the United States ultimately did come to the rescue, that seems to be largely up in smoke. Um, a feeling that the United States now is only willing to uh, publicly portray itself as a security partner, it's not an ally, the security partner of Saudi Arabia, on the basis that Saudi Arabia continues to buy US weapons or continues to make these grandstand pledges of investing in the US Rust Belt, for example, Michigan, uh, Ohio, et cetera, as, as they had to do when Trump made his inaugural visit there back in, uh, back in, back in 2017. So in this sense, the events of the past few days and the past few months, which one might assume previous US presidents would have retaliated far more firmly than the current administration has, have very much fed into this narrative in Saudi Arabia that we can't trust the Americans anymore. It's a purely transactional, business-based White House at the moment. Uh, it's a White House that may be seeking to dismantle previous US presidents' legacies in the region, including Obama's Iran deal, and perhaps trying to reconstruct them under a Trump umbrella instead. We look at North Korea, for example. Uh, Trump's apparent uh, uh, like for uh, big gesture politics on the international stage, shaking hands with authoritarian leaders and claiming maximum credit for achieving that result where previous US presidents have failed. All of that is very, very worrying for Saudi Arabia, of course. And thus far, it seems that Iran and its allies in the region have played it just right. The attacks over the weekend involved no fatalities that I'm aware about. So that, that, that I'm aware of. So very, very difficult for Saudi Arabia to unilaterally respond to this. Saudi Arabia clearly doesn't have the ability to launch surgical strikes of its own in Iran. If it did launch strikes, there's the real prospect that people would get killed. Then, at least in terms of the international commentariat and international opinion, Saudi Arabia become the bad guys in this conflict if they actually kill people in Iran. And of course, even if they didn't kill people in Iran with a surgical, surgical strike, Tehran may claim they did, um, which of course is something that if Iran struck Saudi Arabia, Saudi Arabia would be too embarrassed to admit there were fatalities because it would reveal that their expensive US uh, uh, um, air defense system isn't working and that the king is not providing protection to his people. So in many cases, we're trying to compare two very different types of regimes in a very asymmetrical conflict, making Saudi Arabia in a very placed in a very, very difficult position at the moment. 
and referring to our uh, earlier conversation before, before this afternoon's event, we also need to look for clues to the United Arab Emirates as well. The United Arab Emirates, of course, has been the Crown Prince of Saudi Arabia's key partner in international relations over the past few years, jointly going into Yemen together, jointly uh, organizing a blockade of, of, of Qatar, jointly uh, uh, criminalizing the Muslim Brotherhood and political Islam. So what we've seen here from the United Arab Emirates, despite a very, very hawkish line against Iran over the past few years, when it's actually come to the crunch with the tanker crisis and the re recent attacks, the palace in Abu Dhabi has actually tried to step back from this and actually tried to de-escalate, revealing, it would seem, a belief in the United Arab Emirates and probably Saudi Arabia that they don't have the capacity to actually strike back uh, on their own. So they can't allow this to escalate any further. But as the days go by, Iran keeps to, Iran is able to keep pressing in a very careful, measured way. Yeah, I think you, um, you also mentioned the keyword deterrence um, earlier. The one thing that makes it relatively easy to follow Iran's security doctrine is that the people who are running it are basically the same for almost four decades now. So it's the same logic um, that is followed. And that is that there is this awareness of military inferiority vis-a-vis -vis the regional enemies, be it Saudi Arabia, Israel, United Arab Emirates, let alone the US, United Kingdom, et cetera, that might want to attack Iran. So Iran is aware of that, and the Iranian leadership is aware of that. However, what they then developed was this uh, means of asymmetric warfare with, with which they can effectively deter enemies from taking certain action, following the logic that, okay, we may not be able to defeat you, but we can at least harm you significantly. And that is the entire logic behind the missile program that Iran is running and the allies on the ground that they have been seeking, both on the state and on the non-state a level, and then we have phenomena of, of, of hybrid actors, which used to be non-state actors, but now have like Hezbollah in Lebanon or the Hashta Shabi in Iraq. They have ministers now, they have parliament members, they are members of the state while also being uh, parallel military structures. So Iran has developed means of deterrence, which would be the missiles and the drones, um, and and means of asymmetric warfare through through armed groups on the ground, and. Um, one year, so the, in the first year after the U.S. withdrawal from the from the JCPOA, the idea was to 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 show strategic patience, as they would as they would call it, in the belief that if Iran showed constraint, the other remaining parties would be able to compensate for the loss of the U.S. as a party to the agreement, and then there would be compensation for that, and the agreement can go on. But that certainly didn't 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 work. So then the strategy has been to to gradually escalate by, by pulling out of the JCPOA gradually in reversible manner, and then also to upping the ante in, in, in regional terms, tanker attacks, Christopher mentioned, the downing of a US drone. And I remember that in many discussions about Iran's foreign policy, there have been these two arguments that one, one would say we need to be liked globally so that our position in the region and in the world is better. The others would say, no, 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 we have to be feared in order to have more political leverage. And it seems as if the second strand of political thought, to put it in very simple terms, obviously, is gaining momentum now by saying, look, we are. Uh, it, some things are happening in the region that could have been us, could not have been us, so it's all deniable. Sometimes Iran 
claims responsibility openly, like with the downing of the U.S. drone. Um, and, and, and at other times, it's just ambiguous. Now, with the attacks on, on the oil infrastructure in Saudi Arabia, Iran is saying we weren't involved. And it's really difficult to verify. Some say that, that, that uh, as, as you already mentioned, Saudi Arabia has to find out how it wants to respond. And in Iran's belief, effective means of deterrence can prevent an all-out military escalation. And I would also argue that Iran is certainly um, not interested in an all-out escalation. The question, will, however, will be, are the calculations right about how far someone or how far certain action can go? And we live in a time when non-attributable action is undertaken and conducted by by literally all sides, so it's very difficult for us to really make sense of, of what's happening. To me personally, the, 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 the risk of an all-out war um, is not given yet because what we're seeing now is actually war in the way it is fought in 2019. We have economic isolation of Iran, and then we have things going up in flames in the Iran's neighborhood. That is actually war, I would say. So that's, at some point, we are having an artificial discussion when we are wondering how far it will go. But I would also add and, and, and stop with that, that interlocutors in Tehran don't seem too worried. And they're actually seeing that things in the region are, as you already hinted to, Christopher, somehow playing into Iran, in Iran's favor, playing out in Iran's favor so far. True, but I think we also have to be a bit, I mean, I, I appreciate the, the notion that it's kind of a war already, but I think we also have to be a bit skeptical about the ability of all these politicians and men in green to calculate exactly how far they can go and push the envelope before it goes over the brink, over the edge. And I think in this case, it's partly about the fact that at some point people will consider their credibility to be more damaged by not doing something than by doing something. And that doing something can spiral out of control exactly because they cannot calculate nor can they define the response from the other side to that something that I did. You know, in a sense, one, one man's deterrence is the other person's escalation, to paraphrase another thing. Okay, very well. So let's open up for questions from the audience. Please raise your hand and remember to ask a question. Please identify yourself and wait for the microphone. Thank you. My name is Hormuz Kapadia. I'm a Zoroastrian, uh, originally from Russia, of course, but from India. Uh, I want to ask first a question to you, Adnan. Uh, uh, there is already a war being fought between Iran and Saudi Arabia in Yemen. So uh, if uh, Saudis want to bomb Iran, I mean, they couldn't get any worse reputation than what they're doing in the Yemen. They've got a tremendous negative publicity in what they're doing in the Yemen, where they're actually bombing hospitals and things. That's the first question I have. How does the Saudi uh, regime see if they have to bomb, for example, places in Iran? And the second question is that in Saudi Arabia, how is the tolerance of other religions right now? I had a very bad experience a few years ago when I had to go to Saudi to work. And I put uh, Zoroastrian as my, as my religion on the visa. And Saudi said, sorry, wrong religion. So I said, sorry, wrong country. <laughs> it all worked out. They came to Bahrain and we met there. So what is the tolerance of other religions for 
example in Saudi Arabia today? Those are my two questions. Pick up a couple of questions and then come back. So, um, young lady there. Ashi? Hello, no, no, This is Dimitri. Thank you. Um, my name is Tara Baroni from Stockholm University, newly graduated master's student in political science and also intern in International Institute of Democracy and Electoral Assistance. This question is quite related to um, the panel and since uh, the topic here is also highly related to institutionalist brand um, of political science. And as we can see, the reason behind uh, like human rights violations, um, the starvation and the lack of medicine, uh, is a consequence partly or a result of U.S. sanctions. Uh, or yeah, and we also know that the U.S. has has a veto uh, in order to be able to reimpose the sanctions. Uh, does UN uh, not prior so as an institution UN? Does it not prioritize, uh, in this case, the human rights uh, before the concept of security in the Middle East, uh, in spite of U.S. veto? Because it can be a bit diffuse what the U.N. prioritizes and what the member states have delegated to U.N. Should human rights violations not be prioritized before security? Um. Many thanks for the questions. With regards to Saudi Arabia's reputation as a result of uh, bombing in, in, in Yemen, which of course has led to uh, mass starvation, diseases coming back, and all manner of uh, human rights violations. Um, what I think is sig significant here is that Saudi Arabia and its partner, the United Arab Emirates, are essentially seen as fighting a non-state actor. And in that sense, world opinion on what's happening in Yemen is clearly very, very bad, but it's not the same uh, topic or, or, or subject, as it were, as a Saudi versus Iran war, uh, where largely equal, in, in, in some senses, equal regional powers would be fighting each other. The Yemen conflict still seen as one of these proxy conflicts, as in Syria, as in, in Libya, as in elsewhere, uh, on the periphery of the Saudi-Iran uh, the, the Saudi uh, confrontation. So I think that's why we're starting to talk now about um, uh, factoring in the consequences of different retaliations, how many people would be killed in Iran, how many people would be killed in Saudi Arabia, et cetera. And in that sense, very sadly, the numerous people being killed in Yemen don't really factor into that, don't really factor into that conversation. For example, at the moment, uh, Iran, if it wanted to defeat uh, uh, Saudi Arabia uh, militarily, it would be rather straightforward, in my opinion, given Saudi Arabia's real weak spot are not its oil refineries, which may disrupt the economy, uh, but actually its water desalination plants. But of course, if Iran was to strike the water desalination plants, you would have very immediate human suffering in Saudi Arabia, which would put Iran in the bad guy category in, in world opinion. In a way that hitting the oil refineries, you know, embarrasses, disrupts Saudi Arabia, it's not the same as hitting their, hitting their desalination plants. And I, I should add five of the six Gulf monarchies, the desalination plants are their, are their weak spot. There's not much they can, can do about that. 
with regards to tolerance of religions, this is very interesting and topical. Um, we've noticed uh, in, in recent months, even, uh, the Crown Prince of Saudi Arabia uh, meeting delegations of uh, Christian evangelical churches, for example. This is, of course, a country where the religious establishment in Saudi Arabia, the Grand Mufti, had previously stated there'll be no Christian, there should be no Christian churches on the Arabian Peninsula. And by that, of course, he wasn't just banning Christian churches in Saudi Arabia, he was implicitly criticizing other Gulf states, such as Kuwait, United Arab Emirates, etc., which allow Catholic and, and Protestant uh, uh, churches. Um, it's unlikely to rapidly change in Saudi Arabia, but we can perhaps predict that some sort of religious to toleration for non-Islamic religions may be on the cards in Saudi Arabia as another potential source of legitimacy for this crown prince who's trying to confront head-on the conservative religious establishment uh, in the kingdom. Of course, many other authoritarian regimes in, in, the, in, in the region have used religious to 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 tolerance as well, in particular the, the Assad dynasty in, in Syria. Um, with regards to uh, um, human rights as the, as the priority, um, sorry, with, with regards to hum human rights being uh, um, uh, currently not, not prioritized, uh, I think this is a very um, sad state of affairs, especially in Britain and the United States, where, of course, they are not just or have been providing diplomatic support to Saudi Arabia and the Emirates and Yemen, but they've also been supplying missiles and armaments for this conflict too. Um, I think in many ways, uh, part of the story here has been events in Britain and the United States, uh, uh, domestic events in Britain and the United States have largely, um, uh, have largely uh, ring-fenced the British and American populations from any foreign news at the moment. Therefore, these, these uh, um, atrocities perhaps haven't deserved the haven't uh, acquired the headlines they, they deserve in the British and American press. Um, therefore, the arms uh, have, been, have been supplied almost continuously. Uh, very briefly, I think um, if I got your question right, I think Yemen is not important enough for Iran to be afraid of Saudi retaliation against Iran's allies in Yemen. So if the the... Iran's allies who are governing the north of the country are, are hit by Saudi Arabia. That's something that is happening since four and a half years already. So that is, that won't, that is not going to be a, a ground where the Saudis can actually hit back against Iran critically. Um, and, and that goes back to what Christopher already said. The, the, the options for Saudi Arabia to retaliate are, are, are difficult to, to calibrate. And with regards to, to, to UN and the human rights dimension of sanctions, that is certainly something which is still completely underreported, underexplored. The fact that sanctions increase the hardship of people of that particular sanctioned country, this fairy tale of only political elites being subject to sanctions, is just, I mean, it's it's basically nonsensical. There, it's, there is no such thing as an elite that that wouldn't transpass its hardship down to its people. So that is that is certainly something that that is unaddressed, and there has never been, in my view, enough enough outrage about what sanctions, how sanctions add to the grievances of people, and uh, if it's about uh, um, not only food security but in fact hospitals and medication. 
um, then it's it's not only something about human rights, then it's basically the, the, the right to live, the right to be healthy, the right to get treatment, which is under assault. But we have never had, despite some articles here and there, an overall statement condemning uh, sanctions. They are rather seen as a much more preferred tool than military action. And and I think that is that is the the, the tragic part of it. And I don't I don't see this this changing, unfortunately. If I can chip in there, I think it also partly has to do with the fact that what we somewhat erroneously call the first generation of human rights, which we civil and political rights, tend to in the public discourse to be the only human rights. However, everything else we discuss, like economic and social, uh, etc., those are not really considered human rights in the same way. And that has more to do with traditions of political philosophy that we can't delve into right here now. But you and you first, and then we'll come back to, to you. My name is Elisabeth Ferro. I'm a journalist at Swedish TV4. Uh, I'm wondering, this has been escalating for a long time now, ever, ever since Trump uh, left the Iran deal. And many countries have been trying to hold on to the deal. Uh, they have not succeeded because of the American pressure. And now after the attacks, um, when you listen to the commentaries, you hear Macron saying he wants to keep on his diplomatic initiative. Uh, Germany and Great Britain, they're talking about a collective action of some kind. But to me, it's kind of hard to see what that could be at the moment. Do you see any way forward for the international community to de-escalate this crisis? And would Iran, for example, be more sensible to some kind of pressure from other powers like China and Russia? Uh, I mean, do you see any, any possible way for the international community or other powers to, to step in? Thank you. Uh, Samuel Chishuk from ELS Analysis. Um, a question for Christopher first. Um, I mean, uh, what, what do you think is next, in the, in the, given that uh, we see this shift in, in Abu Dhabi, uh, for instance, uh, maybe perhaps in Saudi Arabia, realization that um, security guarantees of the past might not hold for the future? Uh, do we see some uh, thinking about future realignment, uh, looking east perhaps? Uh, some people have suggested that. What, what do you think that holds? Uh, how, how are they themselves thinking about it? How how will they ensure themselves going forward? Uh, or, or you know, will will they actually wait for things to cool down and 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 try to uh, uh, get into deeper deeper talks with Iran? I mean, what, what do you think about that? And and then maybe a, a question for for Adnan and, and maybe Rusbe too. Um, how far can Iran take this? I mean, they they have this strategy of it seems putting pressure back on the U.S raising the costs for this uh, uh, terrible uh, sanctions policy they're under. Uh, how far can they take it? How, how much, well, frankly, how much casualties would they be um, willing and able to absorb if uh, you know, Trump suddenly starts bombing and, and starts uh, um, well, thinking that he can actually risk killing Iranians? Thank you. Um, yes, with regards to... Macron's effort and the and the JCPOA. I, I mean, obviously, uh, 
on one hand, it is wise to separate the JCPOA from what's going on in other domains, but at the same time, you, it's no longer possible because the one has to do with the other. And I think it is important that you reiter reiterated and reminded everyone of the fact that this whole mess started with the US leaving this nuclear agreement because there was some sort of an arrangement between Iran and world powers that obviously was meant to not only resolve the nuclear dispute, but to also find ways of, of uh, of dealing in Iran in in more normal a more uh, in a normalized manner, um, how can it be saved? I see Macron's initiative as the last, or Emmanuel Macron as the last man standing. If he fails with his uh, initiative to to, uh, to 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 produce this credit line that goes into this transaction mechanism instex between Europe and Iran, so that Iran sees it is more beneficial in economic terms for for the country to stay in the JCPOA and do some sort of, it might be limited economic trade with, with the Europeans, but still of some significant scope. So if this 15 billion uh, credit line, which is discussed also in public, if that really goes through, I actually see a good chance that the JCPOA, it, as it is today, can actually be, be safeguarded. And with regards to the regional developments, um, I believe when whenever Iran feels that um, uh, there is there is uh, there is no more need to to inc to uh, exert its pressure on U.S. allies to achieve something, then it will also immediately stop doing that. And I think right now the urgency is sensed in D.C. It is to some extent it is definitely sensed in Europe, and Macron is to me the only person right now in Europe, the only political figure who is apparently capable of potentially even convincing Trump to allow this credit line to go to go through China and Russia are a lifeline to Iran right now so if they if they did not cooperate in any shape or form Iran would obviously be more desperate but it's never going to be in the interest of China and Russia to just to just give it in like that they have done they have done uh, they had let down Iran at some points in the past but it's it's not now certainly not politically expedient enough and the scope of agreements that are currently discussed between Iran and China will be much more long lasting than the discussion on the JCPOA um very quickly on how far Iran can take this um i tried to set to say that to say that earlier i think um this is a country that is used to it is used to tension um and um, we have, I don't know the exact number of Iranians who basically Iranian casualties in the Syrian war. Um, and there have been complaints. People have been saying, why are we there? Why are our soldiers there? But it never got like a big public discussion. So uh, um, 18 Iranian soldiers died in a car crash um, in, the, in, the, in the northern part of, of the country. That was like a big issue for everyone. They were, uh, people were really, um, commemorating this loss, but when nearly 2,000 people have died, in, in my view, I think it might be more or less, in Syria there is no big outrage about it because this is what war is about. So I think this is when when people might not be shocked if some casualties on Iranian soil might might, might happen. And linked to the Russia and China question, if, if that still goes away that is promising for Iran, the patience will, there will be enough patience for the upcoming at least one or two years. I mean, after that, we don't know what's what's going to come. I'm going to abuse my, my position as chair to also answer that very briefly in one way. I mean, there's one thing that you have to think about, which is a bit of a perverse conclusion that I think people in Tehran have drawn, is that for a year, 
they didn't do anything. For a year, they waited to see the Europeans try and save what Trump was destroying. And during that year, absolutely nothing happened. So then they decided there are two fronts where you have to have a confrontation. One is with the Europeans on the JCPOA by slowly doing less according to the agreement, so less for less. And the other one was to confront the US in the Gulf and its allies to show them that if there is a war, we're going to have the war on your porch, not on our lawn. And in both those cases, so far, it's worked. Because never have the Europeans been so active on trying to save the JCPOA than since May when Iran said less for less. And I think Adnan is perfectly right in saying that if Macron now fails, there is really nothing left of the European initiative and also not much left of European credibility in Tehran on this issue. And the other one is, is confronting the US, but that is in a sense much more tricky because then we end up with the question of Trump's ego. That is, to what extent is he, is he willing to tolerate Iran pushing the envelope without responding and the pressure he will be under in DC to do something? Yes, very, very much so. Connecting this with the, the comment, the, the question from the gentleman at the back of the hall on Saudi Arabia's international relations, um, my, my understanding is that within Saudi Arabia, um, the recent events have certainly been interpre interpreted as a lack of a US security guarantee. After all, what would it take for the United States to, to finally act in Saudi Arabia's defense? Clearly something even worse than an attack on the main uh, oil refineries in the eastern part of Saudi Arabia. And there's a very worrying precedent for the, Saudi, for the Saudis too. If you recall the alleged uh, chemical weapons attack uh, in Syria back in 2017, um, the, the Trump response was very, very limited, including, so it would seem significant, uh, advance warning to the Syrian regime to minimize the loss of life and equipment. Um, essentially not really doing much to sway the conflict one way or the other. So in that sense, a very, a very real fear in Saudi Arabia that they can't rely on the United States for a genuine security guarantee, that the United States will certainly not come to Saudi's aid in the way it did for Kuwait in 1991, uh, and also that the United States, meanwhile, will keep, keep pressing Saudi Arabia for more and more arms purchases and other investments in order to keep representatives of the two countries on the same stage at international forums. Meanwhile, where does that leave Saudi Arabia in terms of diversifying its uh, international alliance network? Well, the Saudis are well aware that for many years, China has regarded the Persian Gulf, despite being uh, the major source of, uh, of hydrocarbon fuel for China, as, uh, as a US maritime security zone. In this sense, China has, has long since uh, been free riding on US maritime security, with very few indications that China has any intention of stepping into any sort of US or prior to that British security guarantees uh, for the region. If we think of the events of the last few days, for example, the statements coming from Chinese officials are incredibly uh, awkward and uncomfortable in trying to hedge their uh, relations as best as they can uh, with Saudi Arabia uh, and, and Iran, uh, and indeed with the other Gulf states too. Um, 
So it's it's leaving it's leaving Saudi Arabia uh, with the very real prospect of having to chart a far more uh, independent and potentially isolationist course in the region and on the world stage, and certainly with events like the Khashoggi assassination last year, it's very much uh, uh, pushing them much faster uh, in that direction than they may have uh, they, than they may have originally wished uh, uh, wished for. Um, so in this sense, we have perhaps um, we perhaps have a Saudi Arabia uh, that's looking to a very different kind of future uh, on the world stage, uh, one that's perhaps going to see Saudi Arabia become more uh, uh, nationalist around the crown prince, especially if he's seen as being less of a client of the United States uh, than his father and his uncles were uh, before him. Um, if we look comparatively at other autocratic authoritarian regimes, around the world, including those today uh, in Central Asia, including those in recent history in Central America, Sub-Saharan Africa, et cetera, uh, they can survive and in some cases for many, many decades and even achieve dynastic power transfers from one relative to another, even if they've long since lost their security guarantee uh, from a superpower. One last question, there was someone up there. Was it there? It was, yeah, go ahead. <clears throat> My name is Jan Sigma. I have a question uh, of a religious uh, part. Uh, the, 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 the Sunnis and the Shias are uh, two, two directions in the Muslim uh, religion. And uh, this great supporter of Shia is, of course, Iran and the Sunnis from Saudi Arabia. Does this have any um, uh, importance in this uh, conflict and in what way and is there to be a, a, a last showdown between these two directions in the in the Islamic world you have 60 seconds each I start. Uh, I, I, as you were asking your question I realized neither of us mentioned it and that's because it really actually doesn't matter there is some Use of these ideologies to mobilize uh, fighters or to, to justify certain action, but uh, it's not the driving logic of these tensions. It's geopolitical, it's power play, it's economic interests, it's geostrategic posturing, but it has ultimately nothing to do with religion. It's sometimes used, but it's not a key driver. Um, yes, I would largely uh, concur with that. I think it's been very much uh, uh, exaggerated over the, over the past few years. Um, clearly in Saudi Arabia, there is a substantial, uh, very restive and potentially insurrectionary Shia minority in the eastern province, which ironically is the part of Saudi Arabia that's most resource rich, but they're the poorest Saudis. They're extremely restive and have been particularly restive in the wake of the major Bahrain uprising back in February 2011. So it's certainly something Saudi Arabia worries about. However, the linkages that have been made, mainly in the Western press, between the Shia of Saudi Arabia and the Shia majority of Bahrain, rising up against their Sunni overlords, seems to my mind to uh, lose track uh, of the lose 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 track of the phenomenon that the the Shia of these two countries have tended to look historically to uh, religious clerics, uh, religious Shia cl clerics in Iraq uh, rather than Iran, and have not necessarily subscribed to the guardianship of the jurist uh, uh, principle, as of course the Islamic Republic of, of, of 
the roundhouse. So yes, very much uh, uh, exaggerated and used for various persons by, uh, for various reasons by politicians on both sides. Very much and with that we conclude today's conversation thank you find us on www.ui.se we are also on facebook and on twitter with ui sweden and we're also on youtube where you can watch our seminars and interviews <laughs>